Welcome to Kernels of Truth, brought to you by Progress Kentucky. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We've got uh, a jam-packed show. We're going to alert you to a few more bad bills making their way through Frankfurt and the Kentucky General Assembly 24. Uh, And then we've got an interview with Kentucky Senator Reggie Thomas of Lexington, uh, big champion, big friend of uh, Progress Kentucky, even back to the days when we were the Mitch McConnell Retirement Committee. Uh, Reggie was a supporter and a friend and uh, a collaborator. So we're really excited to hear his take on what's happening in Frankfurt. Uh, and then we're going to close out with our call to action. So, uh, but before we do that, are, are you ready to help turn Kentucky purple? I know you are because here you are watching or listening to this show. And that takes it takes commitment. And that takes uh, some hope, right? Uh, we don't want to just log the bad bills piling up in the Kentucky House and Senate, right? It is clear that we have got work to do uh, to win better electoral outcomes, to get better policy from our Commonwealth. We hope you'll support Progress Kentucky in our efforts to do just that. Make a contribution right now via our secure online website, Act Blue, to help turn Kentucky purple, $5, $50, $500, it all adds up. We'll put it back uh, into the work we do to turn Kentucky purple. We'll make sure that more folks know about this show and more folks are engaged in efforts to elect better politicians, because that's what it comes down to. Uh, We need better leadership. Uh, But now it's time to check in with our co-hosts. Let us know who you are, where you are, what are you protesting today? If you've got a protest sign, what would it say? You there on the internet, we mean you as well. So we'd love to hear what you're protesting today. Uh, feel free to put it in the chat while we are sharing ours. And I will uh, kick us off. Uh, my name's Aaron Viles. I'm coming to you from Childsburg, uh, a lovely little community on the outskirts of Lexington. Uh, and my sign, my protest sign is actually my shirt. Uh, It's Mom's Man Action for Gun Sense in America, which uh, if folks watched last week, you might recall that Doug and I were both making plans to to go to the Mom's Demand Action rally and lobby day uh, the following day, which we both did. And it was great. Uh, really had some great meetings with, with some legislators to promote uh, important gun safety measures, which I think we'll get to a little bit more later. But yeah, Mom's Demand Action. And I am man enough to be a mom 
to demand uh, action. So uh, let's check in now with uh, with Kimberly. Kimberly, are you there? Protest sign says today, and I'm coming to you live from Jefferson County, from Louisville, Kentucky, as we are right now getting ready for the Window Ford dinner the best one in the state. And also as we are right now preparing for the 150th Kentucky Derby run for the roses. But uh, my protest sign says today, I'm friggin' tired of protesting. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great? If, if yeah, I mean, like I am. I'm, I'm freaking tired of protesting, holding up signs and all of that. I need to see some action like Enough talking, enough walking. It's time for action, people. Booyah. Let's do it. Uh, awesome. I love that sentiment. Uh, all right, Chris. Chris Priest, you there? Yeah, I'm here uh, from Berea, Kentucky. And uh, my protest sign says, let kids be kids, which is a precursor to uh, the story I'll be talking to, or talking not to, I'll be talking to you, but I'll be talking about it later. I love a good teaser. You know? <laughs> uh, awesome. Uh, well, Chris, how are things? Because you, you're an, you're a man of action. You're a man of, uh, you know, I th- I'll say a Renaissance man. Uh, how are things on campus? How are things in the chocolate craft, uh, chocolate making uh, enterprise you've launched? What's going on with you? Oh, it's it's pretty good. Uh, I've made quite a bit of chocolate the past couple of weeks, and then uh, I've actually taken my chocolate equipment and taken it to school with me. And uh, my kids are doing chocolate labs for the next uh, week and a half. <clears throat> uh, so are you then pre- selling that chocolate? Because that sounds like stu- like child labor. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would not do that. I would not do such a thing. Uh, I'm against you know child labor laws. I, I buy you know, fair trade and direct trade cacao to avoid stuff like that. Perfect. Uh, Perfect. No, this is, this is for them to enjoy and for us to learn, uh, learn about cacao and, and, and uh, making chocolate. There's lots of stuff to learn, to learn about it. Um, and uh, especially related to chemistry. And so, uh, yeah, all, all that stuff that I've, I've taken, taken there uh, for the next week and a half and they're, uh, learning how to make it and the the chemistry involved in it and uh, uh, I you know it it's been really exciting. Uh, in fact, we put on the first batch uh, to today and for my first period class and um, yeah, so we'll we'll have some chocolate to start nibbling on tomorrow for them. They get oh, each class awesome. we get to make four batches uh, in our, in our little experiment and each class has a different experiment that they're checking out. So I'm learning, That's they're cool. learning and we get to taste everything. And, yeah. It sounds like you're bribing them, honestly, for like good, like re- <laughs> reviews. Like this, this is the best science teacher I've ever had in my life because I got to eat the chocolate. <laughs> oh, I've been dangling this for months. <laughs> we can do the Kimberly, chocolate lab. Kimberly, you know, what do you think? Would you would you want to like would you like pay closer attention in science if you knew you're gonna like get some some chocolate out of it? Um, this is Whoa, actually this is actually the label for uh, for Chris's chocolate. I I bought some. It's really good. Good deeds, craft chocolate. Uh, you heard it here first, folks. Get you some. Kimberly, what do you think? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, I would come to science class, although I would come to science class just anyway, 
but I might get there a lot sooner, like before the bell rung, if you told me I had to, to get chocolate. Yeah, I think that's a good bribe for sure. I think it would work. I mean, uh, my daughters definitely like paid very close attention to this chocolate. So I imagine they would get to class uh, for sure. They, they really liked it. It's great stuff. We are, you know, we're not like paid to promote this just so you know i i'm just saying it because it's great and i love love to hear the cool stuff that chris is working on uh and i also am getting in early so when it's a huge success he will in fact support the show with uh you know those contributions yeah. well, uh, all right co-op chocolate empire the empire the chocolate co-op chocolate empire i love it all right uh let's get to the news of the week people uh, because it, we had another week in Frankfurt, and man, man, it is some weak, weak sauce that is coming out of that uh, that town right now. Uh, but I do think the first story uh, is coming to us from Chris. So uh, the teaser of Let Kids Be Kids, uh, we've got House Bill 255. So you'll want to keep that number in mind, and I'll say it again, House Bill 255. They want to allow students that are 16 and 17 years old to uh, be allowed to work more. <laughs> Mind you, these students are already allowed to work six hours a day up to 30 hours a week and even eight hours a day if it's a non-school day or school week. Um, and so they're wanting to expand that uh, to even more that they can, you know, uh, and, and so this is, you know, th this is more of them trying to get cheap labor to stay, you know, in, in the market. Uh, and, and so they can squeeze that out as much as possible because most adults don't want to work the low paying jobs. Whereas, you know, the uh, uh, students will, because they're, you know, still living at home and not necessarily depending on that money to survive. Uh, and, and so I find this, uh, just egregious. Like we, we have child labor laws for a reason. Uh, we put them in place for a long time ago and we've got the GOP here again, trying to roll back protections that we've put in place. Uh, 16 and 17 year olds need to be in, in school learning, having that time to, to, you know, play sports and, and run around and, uh, you know, and also have study time and not necessarily have to be worrying about going and working whatever very low wage job is is available. Um, you know, have work experience certainly, absolutely. Uh, you know, they they already have the ability to work up to thirty hours a week, which is a lot uh, of ability, even you know, with while they're in school, uh, you know, in in high school. So. Um, the, the ability to do this, uh, to, to open it up for even more hours, I think is ridiculous. Uh, I wouldn't want my own child to do that. Uh, I see how tired my students are, uh, that are trying to do it all. And, you know, I don't think this is going to help anything. Um, yeah, sure. and so I, I'm curious about how you all feel about that. Your, your children are, uh, your all's children are a little bit older than mine, uh, but uh, I, I certainly teach 16 and 17 year olds. Yeah, so my daughter uh, is 16, my oldest, and uh, she she works so hard at school. I, you know, I couldn't imagine her kind of maintaining school and also working 
really much at all uh, during the school year and certainly not to the hours that this bill would allow. What I think is really telling is that the the sponsor is a guy who owns like a landscaping company, right? And uh, would love to be able to, you know, so absolutely a little self-dealing here. Uh, and then the other piece of it is like, do y'all remember there was that story about the McDonald's? I think it was in Louisville where they had like a third to 10 year old working the fryer at midnight or like, it was just crazy uh, what was happening. Uh, and yeah, now it's like, Oh, let's change the law. So that's, you know, so that's not just outrageous. That's just what we can do, you know? Uh, but it's, it's nuts. Totally nuts. Kimberly, you're muted again. So. I don't know why I keep doing that, but I have a different opinion than both of you all. Oh, more or less, the different corporations are not going to allow kids to work as much as you think. Macy's has a program uh, that has been implemented for many years uh, where we will hire 16 and 17 year olds in that program and they wouldn't even work 25 hours a week. However, I, you know, it's just to each his own because that would get some parents off of welfare once you put that uh, income. Plus, Chris, another thing is when I was in school, we had something called occupational work experience. And that was my third period class. And after that, I could leave for the day, although I didn't have to be at work until 5 p.m. I worked at Jay Riggins and I worked at McDonald's. I worked two jobs while I was in high school plus being a cheerleader, plus doing all the other activities. Then I look at my daughter. She She's 36 years old now, but she went to Sacred Heart Academy. She was in a very rigorous um, program, the International Baccalaureate Program, as well as being a competitive cheerleader where she had to go to the cheer gym almost every day and work at the Foot Locker. And her grades did not slip. Uh, it just a lot of times depends on that child and how that parent teaches them uh, time management. Um, I think a lot of our kids today, I'm just going to say it, what a lot of parents and a lot of grown folks are thinking. They're weak. They're weak. They're too sensitive. They tired all the time. I'm depressed. What are you depressed about? I don't know. I'm so tired. What are you tired of doing? I don't know. I just feel tired. You know, all of these things that I hear from employees uh, that I have on my team um, is ridiculous. If a child is getting out of school and they do have programs like that, I don't know if it's still called uh, occupational work experience, we call it OWE, but they, there are still programs. If a child is working, they can get out of school early. And just think if I got out of school every day at 11 a.m. and I don't have to be at work until five, I work five to nine, then what am I doing with the rest of my time? I wouldn't really study until I got off from work. And right. this may keep some of these kids out of trouble, knowing that they can have some money in their pocket and contribute to the poverty ratio in a lot of these households. All right. Put them to work, Kimberly says. Yes. Uh, get them out there. Uh, what I also thought was really interesting is like a lot of 
the uh, the supporters of of House Bill 255 were saying, look, this is just we're just kind of rolling it back to the federal level. We're not dropping below the federal level uh, in terms of child, you know, child protection. Uh, but I, you know, I. I just disagree with Kimberly completely. I, I just think that, you know, they're, they can still work. They can work a, a lot already. Uh, and I think it's too much. And I don't think that we should be relaxing the the standards at all. So um, that's my thing. If my daughter wasn't a cheerleader, she could have worked 40 hours a week. There might have to be some give and take, but there are families out here that are not living like the three of us are. And if their child could work more hours and bring money home and do their schoolwork, and when they're when you are determined, there is a way. I did it, my daughter did it, my son did it. You know, it, it's all about what you're teaching your child. And most companies, I'm here to tell you, they're not gonna give a child, most companies, 40 hours a week. Most they're not gonna companies. do it to the You remember 18. that McDonald's story though, right? Like you remember that. McDonald's like, didn't hire them. I Let know. me tell you, I live right it. here. It was some parents that didn't have childcare that brought their children in there to help them because people called out. So that's what that's what happened with that situation. It's not like the manager at McDonald's said, oh, you're 10 years old. We're going to hire you. No, that's not what happened. Mm. I've had employees try to bring their children into the store and leave them in the uh, employee lounge or, you know, have them helping on the floor. And that's against our policy. I have to, you have to go home. I'm sorry. We can't have your children in here. I understand your child care issue. I was a single mom myself. But the policies of this company is that you cannot bring your child to work. Yeah, no, and I definitely the you know the the whole child care issue, which we've gone in uh, over a couple of different times uh, because of the bills that are out there. We've discussed child care and the real the critical nature of of having affordable, available child care uh, to be able to let people you know uh, get get to work. Like that's a critical issue, and the legislature is actually considering it. Uh, and that's a, a question I think I'll ask Senator. Um, uh, Thomas, when uh, when we talk to him later. Uh, all right. So speaking of uh, later, we should probably move on because we've got a couple other stories we want to cover. Uh, one thing I wanted to flag last night here in Lexington, the 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 Fayette County government uh, passed a anti housing discrimination uh, voucher program. So making sure that all landlords uh, are kind of required to accept um, you know federal. Uh, vouchers for housing, right? So, uh, you know, basically saying you can't discriminate against people's sources of income. Uh, and, you know, I think it's a really important move. Uh, I love to, you know, live in a city that's willing to do that. There's a rule that's been on the books in Louisville for since 2020, uh, I believe. Uh, and, you know, it's as we deal with the city that has got really expensive housing there's, you know, fewer landlords than, than, uh, than our, than, than are um, that are accepting the kind of what they used to call Section Eight housing uh, vouchers because they you know they it's a form of discrimination you know like oh we don't want you know we don't want poor people staying uh, at our place uh, and so it's you know it's a problem because you know if they don't have you know housing is a fundamental human right I firmly believe and if you're a landlord I don't think you should you know be able to discriminate against uh, the folks that you're uh, renting to um, but. You know, the way this bill 
the the Lexington rule is one thing, right? But what's happening in the legislature is that these you know local control Republicans uh, are coming after those rules and basically saying, oh yeah, you can't actually make rules to uh, force landlords to accept Section Eight. So they're saying that you know this is a you know it's basically a, a it's uh, I think both of the sponsors of the legislation actually are landlords um and but you know it's the way it is written uh housing advocates say that they actually would let any let them not just um discriminate against folks who receive federal uh funding but can discriminate against anyone uh and you know really is a, a problem with the language that's being uh drafted and being considered uh and goes further than just stopping the section eight but uh, says landlords can't be forced to take payment when the person's lawful source of income to pay rent uh, includes funding from a federal housing assistance program, uh, which is really broad. So um, the other piece that I kind of wanted to note, it's February. It's, you know, it's Black History Month. month. Uh, one thing that the Fayette, uh, Lexington Fayette Urban County Council uh, found when they were looking at the issue uh, is that absolutely is, you know, there's a racial component of it as well. Um, the data they, they cited shows the majority of voucher holders are black and the, the available rental properties that take federal housing vouchers in Lexington, uh, are, you know, all within the city's minority neighborhoods. So that by banning that, uh, that income discrimination, the city will be, city will be able to undo some longstanding segregation in housing. That's, you know, that's what some folks are, are saying. So. Again, uh, we think that you know what Lex. I think what Lexington is doing is a is a is a step forward. I think what the legislature is doing is clearly a step backwards uh, and is just you know the wrong direction as the state is facing it. Really, a housing crisis, especially uh, in areas where rental housing is pretty scarce. So Lexington's got a really tight market, and it's important that you know every piece of uh, you know uh, of property available for rental, you know, is, 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 is out there in the market. And this is just cutting, cutting some people off from it. So I don't know. I just was disappointed to see the legislature kind of doing something very specifically to undo something that more progressive cities are doing, right? It's clearly not something that's like sweeping the Commonwealth, uh, but they are clearly just, you know, stepping in to stop Lexington, to stop Louisville uh, from doing something that they think is important. And I think Louisville's had some success with, but uh, not that it's shocking, right? But it's it's disappointing. Uh, either of you have thoughts about that one? I do. Um, right here in Louisville, um, they need over 33,000 units uh, to help with the unhoused portion of our city. So uh, thank goodness there's people like my daughter and many others that are very interested and will acquire property uh, for um lower income families, things of that nature. My daughter's going to buy a few duplexes and a couple of apartment complexes. And maybe even if, even if she has to build and she won't be in Louisville and guess we got to take care of that mama, but you know, whatever. Um, I think it's very, very important that we understand that even here in Jefferson County, um, all of the Section 8 homes are kind of clustered together in one primary area, and that would be the West End of Louisville, which is um, traditionally 
um, heavily black populated. Um, there are great things about the West End of Louisville. I come out of the West End of Louisville, so to speak, uh, when I was here for the summers. Uh, but I just think that we need to open it up more so that recipients can live in other areas of the city rather than just one area. I know a lot of people on Section 8 right now uh, that have been looking for apartments, looking for homes, and they don't want to be in this specific area. And when they try to look further, it's very, very hard. And plus, how are you going to build Section 8 and be able to pay $100 every time you put in for an application for a house or an apartment? The, the whole system needs to be revamped if you ask me, right here in Louisville. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, any any thoughts on that one, Chris? Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly I think that's a step forward for Lexington, and I would like to see, you know, Berea follow suit with something like that. Uh, we also, uh, as many other places, have uh, ish, uh, a growing unhoused population and, you know, trying to make sure that, that people have more options that are uh, under-resourced is, is always good. Like Berea, unfortunately, has even ha currently has a uh, um, city ordinance that bans having a homeless shelter, um, which you wouldn't think little uh, somewhat liberal town of Berea would have, would have something like that. But unfortunately, we do. Uh, so there's there's a, a lot of a lot of progress that needs to be done here as well in regards to housing. Yeah. Yeah. So that is um, House Bill 18 uh, is, you know, one to watch for sure. We'll have that in our bill tracker. Just FYI, that's something we're putting together so folks can keep an eye on, on legislation. Uh, but yeah, uh, certainly is something that we'll be watching. All right, uh, we have one more story, and then we're going to get to our guest, uh, State Senator Reggie Thomas. Really excited to have him joining us. But uh, Kimberly's got a story she wants to bring us first. Yes, most definitely. Giving credit to the Courier Journal right here in Louisville. Uh, is the Kentucky legislator war on Louisville? Uh, some Democrats seem to think so, like uh, Representative Katura Heron, who is a Democrat from Louisville, who told the Courier-Journal it never went away. Now, this thing about war on Louisville and targeting Louisville is not anything new to anybody who lives in Louisville, nor is it anything new for the state legislator. The war on Louisville phrase was basically coined in 2017 over a bill concerning Metro government that would have given the governor, who was then a Republican, appoint powers if the mayor or a council member left office. In 2022, the legislature passed House Bill 314, which put term limits on Louisville mayors and allowed under incorporated parts of Louisville, Jefferson County to form their own cities. Another bill put limits on how frequently that Jefferson County Public School Board can meet and shifted power from the elected to the district superintendent. So this year bills is making their way through, you know, the house and everything and it's taking a lot of aim at how the state targets the largest city and operates. Uh, they're focusing right now on topics ranging from pets 
Uh oh. I think we might have a little technical difficulties. So uh, we'll see. Kimberly, um, Kimberly, you back? Yeah. Can you see me? Can you see me? Oh, there, you're back. All right. You froze for a bit. Yeah. I never went away. I just. Oof, I'm back. I'm so magic. So uh, basically, um, the part of this is like uh, Representative Pamela Stevenson, Colonel Pam, who we all know and love. She says that she's not going to call it a war on Louisville. However, it's something that uh, bears watching, so to speak. So you look at Republican Representative Jason Nemus, uh, who's a Republican from Middletown, which is part of Jefferson County, and he appears to be the leader of seven Republicans, re representatives from the Louisville area focused on passing bills about this city. Nemus denied that there's any coordinated legislative onslaught on Louisville, but state lawmakers need to be concerned with the Louisville. He says, because it's like the state's largest city and a driving economic force. I will say to you, in addition to this, that it is a war on Louisville. I understand to be very eloquent in speech and not to say too much. Um, as a legislator, I do understand that, but I can say it. It is a war on Louisville, and it has been a war on Louisville. And why is it a war on Louisville? Because right now you have so many Republicans that have retired from the state legislator being representatives, and now they want to be council people in Louisville. And it's, and it's going on and on and on like this. So Democrats have said that the bill aimed at Louisville's local government bodies are inconsistent with the Republican Party's commitment to local control. So take, for example, House Bill 18, which we just talked about, which gained House approval and likely to get a Senate floor vote this week. The bill prohibits local governments from passing and enforcing ordinances and from landlords from considering sources of income, especially federal Section 8 housing vouchers when deciding to whom to rent. So uh, this would mean an anti-discrimination ordinance passed by the Louisville Metro Council in 2020 could not be enforced. We already have that law in Louisville. So not being able to be enforced because the state says it should or shouldn't should not have any control over Louisville, Kentucky. So the General Assembly is up in arms about this. It's so many individuals. Uh, at least one Louisville lawmaker feels Frankfurt lawmakers are riding roughshod over our Metro Council decisions. So can you say it's a throwback to the busing era? Oh, how does all of this tie in? Of all the Louisville-focused bills, Democratic Senator Gerald Neal, a friend of the show as well, said he is most concerned about resolutions that would create a task force to consider restructuring Jefferson County public school system, known as JCPS. Senator Neal sees the measures as an attempt to spill and split 
poorer and underperforming parts of the school district from wealthier parts. Whether intentional or not, the move could have implications for racial equity in Louisville. So there's so many lawmakers that are speaking against this. Uh, Representative Ken Fleming, a re Republican from Louisville, denied that the task force will necessarily conclude JCPS should be split up. He says, I think all options are on the table. But the political power of all of it. Nemus is also sponsoring House Bill 388, which would allow other changes and make the Louisville Council and mayoral elections nonpartisan. These moves are most definitely made to control Louisville. Now they wanna talk about this right here. Now, Senator Karen Berg, who's a Democrat from Louisville, she said it's very extraordinary and self-serving to the Republicans. Representative Josie Raymond, who's a Democrat from Louisville, added that Nemus directly, if he plans to run for Louisville mayorship, mayorialship during a recent debate on the measure. And just so you all can know, his own people were. Uh -oh. <clears throat> Part of Jefferson County disallowed the question. So as you all can tell, it's always been a war on Louisville for the Republicans, because if they can get Louisville, they feel like they can have the whole entire state at that point. So it's Louisville and Lexington together in this that we have to remain strong and vigilant to the point where we cannot let the Republicans take over our cities. Because once they do, there is no telling, no telling what will happen. Uh, all right. Well, thank you so much, Kimberly. Uh, we lost you a little bit there, uh, but I think we we caught the, the bulk of it for sure. Um, <clears throat> the war on the blue dots uh, is is absolutely underway with, uh, with Louisville being the biggest of the blue dots. Uh, I think the legislature definitely has their sights on it. Uh, but speaking of blue dots, uh, really excited to bring on now Senator Reggie Thomas, is the minority caucus chair uh, hailing from District 13, uh, so part of, of Fayette County, uh, longtime leader and a longtime friend of the show, and just really pleased to kind of have him on and, and join and share with us uh, what he thinks has happened in the legislature, his take on uh, on uh, on where we're at so far, which I think over halfway through, I think, the session. But uh, Senator Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Aaron, it's, it's good to see you again. It's good to be back on the show. And, and I must tell you, I've, I've been enjoying uh, uh, hearing uh, the discussions between you and Kimberly and Chris. Chris, excuse me, Chris. It's been it's been, been very enjoyable. So I'm, I'm glad to be back with you. Well, I'm so glad. You know, uh, you, as I said in the lead-in, you know, long-time uh, friend of Progress Kentucky, even when we were initially called the Mitch McConnell Retirement Committee, and we were laser focused on that one race. Uh, the first event we did in public, uh, you showed up and spoke at, and you were, uh, I think, you know, longtime supporter. Really, just appreciate the the energy you bring. But we, you know, we had a few specific things we wanted to ask you about um, in the session. There's just a ton going on. Um, but how is the, how would you say the legislature is treating you? 
Uh, challenging. It has its challenges. I, I, I will say that much. Um, um, you know, obviously being in a minority, it's very difficult to impact policy. Uh, uh, there have been some bills that have been passed that, that I'm not a friend of. You talked extensively about Senate Bill 25 and House Bill 18. Uh, you know, I, 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 I've been vigorously opposed to those and, you know, stated as much on the Senate floor. Obviously, Senate Bill uh, 6 is another one that um, uh, uh, has um, uh, I've been frustrated about. So, I mean, you know, there, there, there have been some some OK moments, some, some good moments in, in, in a few cases and then some very, very uh, uh, frustrating and disappointing moments in others. And okay. then, so the uh, Senate Bill Six—that's the anti-DEI bill. I—I—I'm I, horrible with numbers. I could not be a legislator because I could not keep the numbers straight. But isn't isn't that the one? That's right. That's for higher education. Yeah, right. and oh, yeah, for higher education. What and what is the status of that one right now? Has that passed that's the Senate? That right now is is over in the House. That okay. that the the Senate um, uh, last week the the. the um, uh, that that passed, yeah, uh, last week. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, last, yeah, beginning of last week. Um, and that, that was uh, last Tuesday, as a matter of fact. Um, and that was uh, obviously a very contentious bill. Uh, obviously, a, a bill that, that I was strongly against uh, because the, the whole purpose of college, uh, at Aaron, is that you have people come together from all different backgrounds and all different languages and cultures. Uh, and, and, and they come with their different viewpoints, different ideas, uh, different beliefs. And you learn, you learn about that. You learn, you learn uh, from scholars who you know, might have different attitudes and positions than you have. And you hear all of this and then you're able to decide, well, what do I want to believe in? What do I think is the best approach? That's what college is for. Uh, and with Senate Bill Six, the the the, the uh, Senate significantly watered down DEI. Uh, uh, really, in my in my opinion, it does two things. It it very it chills and, and uh, uh, freezes discussion on some very important issues. You know, uh, related to uh, uh, gender right. Uh, 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 historical facts involving, you know, uh, racial discrimination, uh, you know, that discussion, and at the same time, opens up very, very hostile, and in 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 the words of the the language, in the words of the bill itself, very unpopular discussion about some topics. I mean, that's actually the wording from the bill: unpopular statements. So it, it, it's it opens the door for some very offensive remarks that can be made. I think we, and we covered this a couple of times on our show the past few weeks, because it, it has been a topic that a lot of people are, you know, are focused on. And you said it's been watered down a bit in the Senate. Um, and, you know, is there, is there any hope that this thing is going to get stopped and that, you know, the, the house will kind of come to its senses or water down even further or do something to kind of just make it less uh, of a, 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 you know, a negative impact for higher education in our in our state. Well, Chris, I mean, not Chris. Well, uh, Aaron, there's always hope. There's always hope. So yes, you know, it's possible. It's possible. It goes over to the House, uh, and the House will take another look at it and say, look, this 
this is really something that will would stymie uh, and reverse all the gains we've made in our colleges and universities. I mean, because every every state university in Kentucky has a DEI policy. Everyone from from Murray in the West to Moorhead in the East and all the all the universities in between. Many of your private colleges, your independent colleges, have a DEI plan. And they do so is because they want to get a well-rounded, well-mixed group of students together because that's colleges are supposed to resemble and reflect what society looks like. And that's good and healthy for the college to have a variety of, of students from from backgrounds, from regions at their university. Excellent. Well, hey, I want to uh, I'm going to ask uh, one question and then I'll throw it to my my co-hosts to, to maybe query you as well. So uh, I was very happy to see you last week in, in person doing your you know, doing your job there at the Capitol. Uh, Doug, uh, you know, uh, Doug Price, a frequent co-host uh, here uh, and I were both there for the Moms Man Action Lobby Day in support of the crisis aversion and rights retention public safety bill. Uh, it seems like it's currently bottled up in the committee on committees, despite having a Republican lead sponsor who seems very interested in moving the bill forward and who actually chairs the committee that the bill should be assigned to. So I'd be very interested in your thoughts on the on the car bill and it's, you know, kind of prospects for passage and what people need to do to kind of lean into something that, you know, even as you said, it's a d very divided Senate and the, you know, the, the Democrats, you know, are very much a minority party there. Uh, but this is, has Republican leadership committee chairman, you'd imagine could get the bill to his own committee. What's, you know, what do you, what do you, what's your take on that? And what do we need to do to get the car bill moving? Aaron, I think his chances of coming to the Senate floor are, 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 are slim to none. That's wow. what I, Reggie, you just said there's always hope, Reggie. There, there is always <laughs> hope. I, I didn't say there was no. Uh, <laughs> uh, look, um, you're right. The the judiciary chair is someone who's very been, very interested in the bill. He had two hearings on the bill and during the interim session. Right? So, so you know he's interested. Uh, and there's a crying need, Aaron, in this state and throughout this country to do something to, to, to stymie these mass shootings. Uh, if you saw the session today, Aaron, you saw that I honored a young man from Lexington who got in the, in the middle of an active shooter in a restaurant bar in Lexington that, that where, where the active shooter could have killed seven individuals. And he took the bullets and, and, and survived that. He saved several human lives uh, otherwise, Lexington would have made the news for being the next city where we saw mass deaths at, at one location. It's, it's prevalent everywhere. Um, and, and we've got to get a handle on this. And I mean, you get frustrated. You, you get impatient because you say, how many more hundreds and thousands of young children, of innocent people, of, of, of husband and wives have to be killed before you're going to do something about this. I mean, it's just, it, you, 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 get, you just get frustrated. And you guys take a step back and say, okay, I'm going to gather myself and I'm going to push forward uh, again for the next opportunity when we, we can finally get something done that makes a lot of common sense, but more importantly, eyes. Yeah. 
you know, you imagine that the, if the old National Bank shooting, you know, doesn't like wake up the need for this type of, you know, this specific type of safety measure, uh, you know, what will, right? And uh, I guess, you know, the, the kind of the just fundamental assertion that the the Second Amendment is the only sacrosanct amendment that cannot be infringed upon. It, you know, the fact that the majority party in, in Frankfurt is, is just beholden uh to those uh those views it's just really unfortunate i guess you know and if folks like me like other moms other you know folks all across the country who are just uh fed up you know think about that right like these very seemingly reasonable individuals we met with on for the lobby day were just like brandon senator brandon storm like literally stormed out of a meeting because he's like i'm a second amendment you know guy that's it and like people are like well i think you could do this without kind of you know you know with, with some kind of common sense measures and he wouldn't even sit down and, meet, and finish the meeting he like got up and, and and stormed off so i guess it's not just a you know it's not just his name it's how he behaves as well uh there's not a there's not really a question in there. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> let me step off my soapbox. <laughs> Again, you know, I I I understand your disappointment. Um, you know, I, I again I understand your impatience. Uh, you know, I, I I share both of those, Aaron. I share both of those. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, that was my like one day going up to Frankfurt in the session. You're there for every single day of the session and the you know the interim stuff. So. More power to you, sir. Uh, all right, Chris or Kimberly, question for, for the senator? Go ahead, Chris. Go okay. ahead. All right. Um, so thanks for, for being on the show. It's it's good to, to see you and talk to you again. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm really curious. You know, there's there's so much negative, a uh, lot of awful bills that are that are going through. Um, and I'm curious of like, what is a what is a bright spot that you're putting your energy into trying to pass a, a good bill um, that could that could actually help us? What what if you could pinpoint one bill that that you're putting uh, some of your energy into? Uh, what what would that bill be, and how is that going to help us? Well, Chris, your question really couldn't be more timely. I mean. <laughs> Timely, because if you uh, come to the, the Senate on Friday or you tune in to the Senate on Friday, you will see me promoting a bill on the Senate floor that uh, really helps those persons in the nail technician industry. What what we heard over the summer in, in two committee hearings, one before the licensing committee uh, and another through the the commission on the commission on justice or the task force on justice uh, and equality is that nail technicians are having a hard time really making headway uh, 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 in in the Kentucky nail tech industry because they they encounter a lot of oppressive conduct uh, they were having uh, difficulty taking the exams because the exams were in English they didn't have a seat at the table. Uh, uh, so, so, th so they were just, um, really encountering a, a lot of abuse in the industry, even though, you know, they, 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 they work six, seven days a week they they, they are hardworking group of, 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 of women and men, uh, and they just want a fair chance. Well, the, the legislature through a bipartisan effort, I want to, I want to say this to you, Chris, I mean, I've got, uh, as, as co-sponsors 
uh, on this bill, Senator John Schickel, uh, who, who um, generally speaking, uh, he and I have different uh, philosophical views about how government should operate, but he and I are both friends. Uh, and Senator Jason Howe, who's from Western Kentucky, uh, who's also uh, of a party different from mine. Uh, so it does have strong bipartisan support. Uh, and we're going to get this bill passed, which which mandates that you have a nail technician on the board of cosmetology, uh, that there there be some kind of workout approach if there's if the board feels there needs to be some kind of disciplinary action against the nail techs. It 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 doesn't um, uh, uh, have to be you know. Uh, lose your license, go to a hearing, that they try to work things out first. That And one of the most important things it does, Chris, is that the Board of Cosmetology right now is one of only four boards in this state that can bring direct criminal action against a member. In other words, you bypass, yeah, I see your eyes raising. You have to bypass, you can bypass the county attorney, you can bypass the commonwealth attorney and bring a direct criminal action against someone. Now, we don't have that, generally speaking, in the state. Like, the only three other boards other than the Board of Cosmetology have that. Um, even the KPA doesn't have that, if we're attorneys. Uh, so we remove that clause. So it does a lot of good things. And again, I, I am promoting that bill, and that bill is going to be voted on the Senate floor on Friday. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. I know, Kimberly, you, you've got to kind of, you got to make your way out of the show pretty quickly. So I wanted to make sure you got a chance to to say something to to the senator. Well, you know, um, Senator Thomas, I had to be on here and stay a little bit longer for you. Well, um, I, I'm a big fan of yours too, Kimberly. Uh, thank you. So that means you're coming to the Wendell Ford dinner again this year, right? I, so, I, I come every year. Thank you. And you know, I was a chair last year, so I'm a chair this year. But I'm coming again this year. I've been there several years. Thank you. I know. I know. So uh, basically, my question is, and it is, I believe, a viable question as well. I know that we're trying to do legislation and, and it all gets convoluted because of the gun manufacturers and the money that's being passed. Why we can't get these laws, common sense um you know, gun laws into effect. However, there's also another epidemic of illegal guns in our country. And those illegal guns are really fueling a lot of the crime, especially in our state, in Louisville. The crime rate here is astronomical, uh, beating out New York and California. And, and God, how could it even be Chicago, but we do, and it's a lot of murders happening by guns, illegal guns. Where are these illegal guns coming from, and how can we get them off the streets? Is there anything that the legislative can do about that? Uh, well, Kimberly, obviously, we want to take crime very seriously. Um, and and to the extent that you know there there are efforts we can do to provide more uh, safety resources. And again, I don't want to get too much into 
uh, 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 what we can provide to Louisville, because I, because again, I, I want Louisville to be its own independent jurisdiction. Uh, but to the extent that that we can provide additional help or funding to Louisville in 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 the area of safety, we'll, we we would be glad to do that. But there's a, there, there's another side, Kimberly, that I want you to think about, okay? Uh, because what we're going to see, and what what I am also opposed to, Kimberly, uh, are these bills like Senate Bill Twenty, like House Bill Five, that 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 uh, have this tough on crime approach, Kimberly, where they they are incarcerating a lot of people that shouldn't be incarcerated, like juveniles, uh, who might not even have a criminal record, but but you know do something that that obviously unwise and foolish. Or homeless people uh, who are who are homeless and have have that homeless status, and and generally speaking, we don't treat status as a crime for adults. Uh, and we know, Kimberly, we know as a country that this lock them up and throw the throw away the key approach does not work. We tried that, Kimberly, in the eighties, the nineties here in America, and our crime rate shot up because of that. And then when we got to the 2000s, started taking a different approach uh, and started looking at alternative ways to deal with 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 uh, uh, criminal acts uh, that we saw crime crime take a precipitous drop, uh, and, and crime has dropped 50 percent, Kimberly, in this country over the last 20 years because we've taken a different approach. Uh, I would say this, Kimberly, and and. and Excuse me if I if 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 if, if, I, if I sound bragging, but uh, it, it is it is it is as Hamad Holly says, it's not bragging. If, in fact, in Lexington, Kimberly, we've seen almost a percent drop in our homicide rate over the last year. We've seen a fifty percent drop in our violent crime rate in Lexington over the last year. You know, we're one of those cities that have gone significantly the other way in terms of reducing crime. And that's because we've taken a more community-oriented approach. We've gone out uh, and met people where they are, uh, and working with young people, and working with 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 with, with elderly people, and 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 community leaders in these communities, um, and saying you'll help us address those ills that we see in your community, so that we can stop violent behavior in our community. And that's working real well in Lexington. And I would urge you to talk to the people in Lexington to see, hey, what are you doing here to cause almost a 50% drop in murder rate from 2022 to 23? What are you doing to cause a 50% decline in violent crime rate here? Because 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 we're we're we we how can I put we've got it going on. I'm just gonna say what, what I want to say. We've got it going okay. on in terms of in terms of you know reducing and, and reducing significantly crime. And, and so I would recommend that's the second part of your question is how can we how can we reverse this trend in Louisville of high crime? And I would say talk to the people, talk to your friends in Lexington, because you know Louisville and Lexington, we do talk to each other. Talk to your friends in Lexington and say, what are you guys doing to 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 make it work in Lexington? And 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 what can we learn from what you're doing? Senator, I just have one last little bitty question before I have to pop off of here. But um, I found out that I wasn't 
as good of a mother as I thought I was because I just found out that my 33-year-old son does not know how to write cursive. And I understand that there's a lot of millennials that don't know how to write cursive and they cannot read cursive. But I understand that it was introduced many, many years ago um, in Frankfurt about bringing that back to the schools, making that mandatory back in our elementary schools uh, to write cursive. What are your thoughts about that? Oh, I agree with that. I mean, I've learned how to write cursive. I remember I, I first began public school education in Chicago uh, back in you know back in the in the in the late fifties. And I remember being in first grade and be and and giving this handbook uh, and began to talk cursive. Look, Kim, I, I'm kind of old school. Again, I, I'm, I'm just saying I'm just gonna be real, real with you and 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 Aaron and Chris. I'm kind of old school. You know, I believe in phonics. I think one of the biggest mistakes we made. You know, during the 21st century is saying that we're going to move away from phonics as part of learning and 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 educating our children. You know, English is is very phonetically driven, and we need to learn and we need to emphasize in first grade our children learning phonics, and 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 that includes cursive, uh, writing, uh, and how to how to write words and how to how to put phonetic sounds together. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a strong believer in that. Kimberly. I can't, I can't tell any other way. I'm a strong believer in that kind of Kernels truth. of truth, where we dig into the most important issues of the day. That is, <laughs> hey, that is important because now that I know that a lot of them cannot write cursive, that means I have to print everything or I have to type up everything in an email or a text message. And you need another dictionary for all these little abbreviations they do. So I think cursive is very, very important. And I just found out that my son, a lot of people he knows, and they weren't teaching it. So I appreciate you answering my questions. I got to roll on out of here, but I love you all. And thank you to the viewers and the listeners. Bye. Um, thank you, Kimberly. All right. So one, one last question, uh, Senator Thomas, then I'll let you go. Okay. Uh, uh, roll out as well. But so we had covered a couple of different times, the kind of the, the crisis around uh, childcare in, in Kentucky, the you know Kentucky Center for Economic Policy, I think did a really important analysis that just showed there's a cliff coming because of those federal funds running out uh, that have supported childcare. Uh, and your colleague, Danny Carroll, actually, you know, put together, I think, a very strong proposal to, you know, boost the amount of money available, I think, up to $300 million uh, to, to support childcare and early childhood education. Any thought, like, he's a Republican, uh, you know, is there any hope of that budget item kind of getting bumped up uh, in the process to, to support, you know, uh, because it seems like otherwise it's a kind of an austerity type budget that the Republicans have put forward. But any any process, is there any hope on that one? I think that's such an important issue. Aaron, that's a great question. I'm going to tell you exactly where I am. The child care industry does need help. Uh, and Aaron, their, their business model is such that they don't really begin to make money until children turn three years of age because of the way the regulations are written. You, you have to have so many teachers uh, in the you know, infant one-year and two-year-old classes that, that uh, 
those labor costs uh, make the ability to profit from it very, very challenging. And the, the hourly rate for many of your private child care providers is not really not that high. Fifteen dollars, thirteen dollars, seventeen dollars an hour. So 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 you only you're only talking about three year olds, four year olds, five year olds, where it can really uh be because of the, the um lower teacher to student ratios where it can make some money. So yes, they do need help. Um and, and I'm very supportive of giving them more money. However, Aaron, I've got to say this, and I'm gonna say this to my colleagues when we get to the floor. I think $300 million just for childcare is, is an imprudent way of dealing with early child education. What we really need to do, Aaron, and, and I'm gonna say this until I get hoarse in my voice, is have universal pre-K, okay? Uh, and we need to do both. We can have universal pre-K, when we start bringing four-year-olds, you know, into school, uh, and going back to Kimberly's point, you know, getting them to learn how to to use their alphabets uh, and and do simple math, and and more importantly, just learn how to socialize uh, with with other other children in a social setting. All those are very important skills, and we can provide universal pre-K at a much cheaper rate than three hundred million dollars as well. Now. Obviously, once you bring those four-year-olds in school, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to give money to our childcare industry because otherwise, many of them will close their doors, and that's not good for our workforce development. So, we need to do both, Aaron. We need to make sure we, you know, uh, buttress uh, our childcare providers so that they can have sufficient funds to pay for their staffing. Uh, 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 to pay for uh, uh, their insurance costs, uh, to make sure that they can earn a, a decent profit, to make make their investment in, in operating a child care facility worthwhile. We definitely need to do that. But at the same time, we need to bring our four-year-olds in school early uh, so that they can, they can start their education earlier, which will eliminate achievement gaps, uh, and begin to equalize you know, student learning across uh, our racial, ethnic disability line. Absolutely. That's uh, that uh, that seems like a, a, a smart approach. I, I definitely understand that you know it's a complicated uh, system, uh, and it, but it is one that is you know critically important for for our workforce. It's it got a business model that's awfully tough to to manage, uh, and one that you know we as a nation spend uh, you know a a staggeringly small amount on compared to other developed nations. Uh, so absolutely, I think something we we need to do more of. But uh, Senator Thomas, any final thoughts you want to leave leave us with, or anything you want to add? Well, Aaron, I'm I'm going to say this to you because um, you you are someone I do admire, and you know having this podcast and showing taking interest in what goes in the state government. You know, I, I'm so glad you do that. But you and I want you to come to Frankfurt more. That's my final. That's my final recommendation to you to be you more cut, you cut out a little bit so uh you, you you were saying very nice things about me and then it felt like maybe there was going to be a turn or something and then you cut out which <laughs> i was okay with but i i, I want you to come to frankfurt more i, yeah. I want you to be, be visible in frankfurt more 
That's what I want. Well, my paying job uh, doesn't doesn't necessarily agree, but yeah, uh, find you know find us a big fat donor who wants to make a big contribution to Progress Kentucky, uh, and we'll make it a less than an all volunteer gig, and we'll show up every day. Uh, so, you know, my own business model, of course, is it's not quite healthcare or childcare, but you know, it, it's it's complicated. Uh, Senator Thomas. We are so glad you were there. Uh, as Trent uh, said in the in the comments, everyone needs a senator like Reggie Thomas. Unfortunately, there <laughs> we don't have that. Not everyone in Kentucky has a senator like you. In fact, there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, folks in Kentucky who have the anti Reggie Thomases out there, uh, and that's one of the biggest problems uh, in this state right now. Uh, but you know, we're going to keep working on it. We're going to keep making sure that we call folks out and we alert people to what's going on. So Brandon Storm, who likes to storm out on meetings with uh, you know folks who just want some common sense gun protection laws, you know, uh, I don't think he'll show up on this show. So uh, we appreciate all that you're doing, Senator Thomas, and keep up the great work. Well, well thank you, Trent, for being very kind, and, and you do great work too, Aaron. And you know, anytime I'm on the show, I, I will gladly do it. We appreciate it. We and and you have a good night too. All right. So we got to do our call to action because we've talked about a lot of different bills. We had Senator Thomas talk on about a bunch of different bills, but uh, I am going to ignore what Senator Thomas just told me. We have got to get the car bill moving. Uh, I am not giving up hope on the uh, crisis aversion and rights retention bill. Some call it a red flag bill, but we don't call it a red flag bill because that's a red flag for Republicans. Uh, but what we need you to do on this call to action is to uh, call, use that use that comment line, the legislative comment line. I think uh, Annabeth can pull up, there it is, 1-800-372-7181. Uh, if you've not called this session yet, today's the day, depending on when you're listening to this, Maybe it's tomorrow if you're watching it live, but it's like, I think they're nine to five, whatever. Just call them and say, hey, demand SB 13 gets assigned to the Judiciary Committee immediately. That's the, and leave the message for all the Senate leadership, your Senator and the entire Senate leadership. We also have a, a lot more information. If you want more information about the bill itself, its approach, uh, kind of the proven nature of it. We have got uh, we got some great uh, information for you. I'll put a comment or I'll put a link in our show notes. Uh, we're putting a comment on it right here. Just go ahead and click on that Bitly link, and you'll find out lots lots more about this this legislation. But please do take action uh, immediately and call uh, for the uh, the Senate leadership to move SB thirteen to the Judiciary Committee immediately. Right now, it's just dying in the Committee on Committees. Uh, we need the Senate leadership to act, and they, they need to hear a ton of calls. So please, everyone, call uh, call early, call often, call until they do the thing that we need them to do. Uh, all right, uh, and I think that's it for, uh, for most of the show. Chris, you want to close us out? Yeah, sure. Uh, so Progress Kentucky is a nonprofit organization registered with the Kentucky Secretary of State and organized as a 501c4. We are affiliated with the Indivisible Project, uh, the Commonwealth Alliance for Voter Engagement, CAVE, and are also proud members of, Forward, of the Forward Kentucky Network. Progress Kentucky's goal is to educate, organize, increase voter turnout, and advance a progressive agenda through civic engagement. 
Next week, we'll be joined by another wonderful guest, Professor Gerald Smith from UK. Uh, Professor Smith, most recently the editor of a collection of path-breaking essays entitled Slavery and Freedom in the Bluegrass State, the uh, Revisiting My Old Kentucky Home. Production of episode 150 uh, was by Annabelle Nagel. Big thanks to Nate Orsham, who wrote and performed our theme song. Uh, you can find more information and music at natosongs.com. If you missed our weekly live stream on Facebook or YouTube, audio podcasts and our show notes are available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and whatever you get your po or wherever you get your podcasts. If you do listen to the podcast, please leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening to us right now. Logo and some graphic content provided by Couch Fire Media. More information can be found at couchfiremedia.com. And thank you all so much for listening. <laughs>